Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Pledge is a recent indie horror gem from director-writer team Daniel Robbins and Zach Wiener. Pledge follows three young hapless college kids as they attempt to pledge for a highly exclusive fraternity and are subsequently subjected to a sadistic gauntlet of unspeakably horrific hazing rituals. Pledge mixes humor and horror in a well-balanced and thoroughly engaging narrative with main characters that you genuinely care about. At the same time, Pledge manages to effortlessly delve into themes of elitism and the culture of bullying in a way that's relevant without being heavy-handed. Prior to Pledge, Zach and Daniel made Uncaged, a teen werewolf movie thriller from 2016. Zach and Daniel were friends in high school and went on to make low-budget horror movies together right here in my hometown of New York City. They've been enjoying a great amount of success lately as Pledge was recently acquired at Fantasia Fest by IFC Midnight and is on its way to Hulu. In addition to being a downright great time of a movie, Pledge is a prime example of an intelligently produced, lean and mean indie horror film that looks and feels way more expensive than it actually was. It also introduces a particularly strong horror mythology that is ripe with possibilities for sequels. I'd personally love to see Pledge unfold into a franchise. We sat down with Daniel Robinson, the director, Zach Wiener, the writer and one of the actors, and Zach Bird, who was one of the main actors from Pledge. We explored the key lessons of indie horror filmmaking that they learned while making this movie. I had a lot of fun hanging out with these guys and hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. Now, without further ado, here are the guys of Pledge. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. So let's talk about Pledge. How how did the movie come to be? How did you guys all come together? How did this thing get made? What's the story behind, behind it all? Well, um, Daniel and I and our, our third producer, Mark, we all went to high school together. Oh, wow. And Mikey Gelfand. But I wasn't in high school with him, and he's the fourth person involved. And we have been just making videos since I was a freshman in high school, and Daniel was a junior. We had a small rift. We ran for the same student government seat. But after that, we've been patched up, and we've been just working on stuff. But yeah, and then we made a movie, um, Uncaged. Daniel uh, and Mark wrote it. And, Daniel directed and I acted in it and it was a really great experience and so we wanted to do it again in 2016 and I had this idea for a horror movie a horror comedy about hazing mm-hmm. and I told Daniel and Daniel liked it and yeah the one bad thing is he had the idea we really wanted to shoot in July because we had everything going um, and he came up with the idea in late April so it gave us a really short timeline to get it made. Oh, wow. Even on set, the script still wasn't fully done. Zach calls it an evolving script. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's my own new style. <laughs> so the actors complained that they never had a chance to learn their lines overnight. But others would say that it kept them on their toes, that they would get pages on the day and have to learn the lines immediately. That's so cool. it led to a, you know, a nice electricity. Was there a lot of improv because yeah. of that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had a healthy amount of, but improv in the in the French sense, like you know, from the script directly, <laughs> exactly. Why well, between the lines and tension? No, we got a lot of improv and a lot of good lines, and I realized it was such an important lesson, just not at least for me, not to be so precious with these lines because a better one's a better one. I don't care where yeah. it comes from. And you came up, so it's your story. You came up with the idea originally. Yeah, I came up with the original concept of uh, of hazing. It seemed to speak to larger symbolic 
themes of today. There's obviously, it seems like there's an element of elitism and Trumpism in there mm -hmm. and just this overall concept of bullying. Were you trying to tap into any of that at all? Or was it just, was this mostly pure story and any sort of reflection of today's culture was merely the collective unconscious or whatever you want to call it? I think it was the collective unconscious. I, I mean, I was on a bus going to see a, a Trump speech because oh. I thought it was a novelty at that point. And I was curious what it would be like. I thought he was never going to speak again. So I was on my way to a Trump speech uh, when I had the idea. So That's maybe crazy. Subconsciously. But consciously, I just thought it would make for a fun story and that was yeah. what we really focused on is just getting the story as as fun and upsetting as possible nice yeah and, and zach hates when i say this but uh <laughs> here it comes here it comes his theories his theories that his all these frat movies are about acceptance and we tried to make it about something different to keep it interesting mm -hmm. so for us it was um about elitism and but at its core it was just that have have nots right and whether having means that the have-nots are, are nothing or sh or shit, you know? Because like, it's right. very possible to have a system where some people get to be part of a club and it doesn't mean everyone else is just less than human or, or worse. Yeah, which is super relevant in a ton of different ways. I mean, people talking about white male privilege and toxic masculinity, and but it sounds like you were not consciously trying to do a movie about any of those things. It just all flowed naturally into, into what Pledge became. Yeah, I think for me and from all of us giving a little part of it, but... And going through, yeah, that same, we kind of latched onto that core experience of being rejected and then how much you want to get into something. Nice. I can also say that Zach is one of the people that will often, when I come over to his house, which I do a lot now, it's just like, did you see that thing in the news or the paper? And you're very sensitive to, to all of that chaos that's going on. So it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if on a bus to a particular speech you were, you were picking up on things like that. You're always commenting on this. Well, Skull and Bones. Thank <laughs> oh, you. That's yeah. nice of you to say. And Skull and Bones was part of it. And that, so that was a little more conscious seeing how that is an example of like this taken to a really elitist. Uh, I don't know anything about them. I know they exist, but <laughs> they're, they're kind of like, or unless they've changed, but they're, they're pretty much just weakened now. They're not really as effective, but back when my dad, my dad went to Yale, mm -hmm. um, but no one told him it even existed, much less that he could be a part of it. It's just the secret club and you have um, John Kerry, two other presidents, right. a bunch of CEOs. And FDR, they all, right? FDR, I think. Bro. The guy who produced it follows. Don't tell any. Oh, we're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> a lot of people in there. Just this network of uh, God knows how they got in. Wait, your dad was in it too? No, my dad learned senior year. That oh, okay. Got it. Friend got punched freshman year and didn't even tell him that it existed. Wow. A lot of people Holy in Yale hoped to be invited. My dad didn't even know what he was missing <laughs> right right a proud lineage of uh, elite members yeah. i remember you know coming up in the 2004 election with the whole idea of, of bush versus Kerry and how they both had this like eerily similar yeah uh the guy got don't tase me bro you remember, oh, you remember that yeah. oh yeah he's yelling about yeah. skull and bones so this is this is exactly what he's like he, he scours the internet and the news for these <laughs> yeah outrageous moments and then turns them into art it's are you cool. a flat earther too you conspiracy I mean, that's guy. an obvious thing i don't feel like i need to debate yeah, we're all so part clear. of <laughs> so clearly true <laughs> nice i figured as much so, um would love to go back to uncaged how did that come about and that that was your that was essentially your breakout film right <laughs> Your, um, your first breakout is a generous word. It was <laughs> okay. it was our first film. <laughs> uh, that was when I was my it was my third year in NYU because mm -hmm. I finished um, in three years because somehow they gave me credits for Israel. Nice. And over that winter break, Mark and I we were roommates. We decided that we really wanted to make a comedy movie. But then my friends at Boulder Light Pictures, JD and Rafi 
who have made the horror film Contracted. They said, if you make a comedy, it'll be the last movie you ever make. You're not going to get your money back. Right. So we said, okay, what should we do? They said, make a horror movie. So we said, all right. <laughs> so then we came up with Uncaged. <laughs> and we made it for a very low budget. And we shot it in three and a half weeks. Whoa. And then it sold to RLJ, who sold it to Netflix. And that was back when Netflix was taking pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. Then it was on there for two years. And then we learned a lot on it. Nice. How did you pull all the financing together in the beginning? It was all um, friends of friends, family friends. Oh, nice. And a lot of me, Mark, and two of my other good friends. Like micro donations. Yeah. So everyone would put like five or... Oh, that's awesome. People would put in like two grand or yeah. five Blood grand. simple strategy. Right. <laughs> I think they did $60 from a lot of different dentists. They did $60? <laughs> no, $100 from It's all dentists. about dentists, that, right? Is that true? That the, I haven't tried pitching dentists, but I read it in a, in um, Dov Seaman's book, the... I forgot. Real to Deal. Oh, okay. Which apparently is like the quintessence. Even though he never ended up being a filmmaker, <laughs> every that's the one book that's not written by a filmmaker that everybody says is like Tarantino even even credits. Oh wow, Dov Siemens. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, right. I gotta read that. Yeah, we got real to deal. Yeah, he did his courses too, but the book is just it's unbelievably comprehensive. Oh my god. Raising everything. money is a lot of it on a smaller. There's like some of it. Simple. It's not that up to date. Like it doesn't cover Kickstarter and things like that yet. I think the last edition was maybe 10 years ago, but a lot of the principles are super relevant. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. One thing that also helped for um, a lot of people chipping in money was we had the sales agent, our friends Boulder Light, mm -hmm. pre, like locked on beforehand. And they had a good track record. Oh, nice. It seemed like a pretty safe bet that we would get some channel. Right. It was also, so a lot of people said no, because a film, you can invest in any asset in the world. You don't want right. to put your money in a film. And I would always go with the pitch of this movie was going to be so good. This is how much money you can make. Mm -hmm. But once I changed it to, okay, look, even if it's really bad, we're making it for so little that you'll get it back. Right. And people were like, all right, like here. Nice. Nice. And then you sold it. Which yeah. Is amazing. Did then, you get a sales agent or did, was, were people it just was, picking it up? Our sales agent was Boulder Light Pictures. So oh, Rafi okay. and JD. And they also sold Pledge. Nice. So yeah, were you one dude. of those directors who... Did a horror movie as a way to, to start, and then you wanted to do real movies later, and then you fell in love with horror and then decided to do Pledge? Um, my intention with Uncaged was I'll just do a horror movie for the first movie. Yeah. But then after that, Mark and I really appreciated the genre more because we had to explore it so much. Right, right. So for the second one, we really learned what a better horror movie can look like. Mm -hmm. And Zach came up with the idea for Pledge, which fits so well. And then that's Pledge's movie that we all love. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty gory. And I, yeah. think, and I think one thing also from Uncaged, because mm -hmm. Daniel, yeah, I, the horror wasn't your first choice, but he has come to like it. And a big part of it was realizing how much room for our sensibility there is of making it weird and trying right. to make it funny and trying to expand. Because I think horror people will, are more open to, totally. to new bizarre attempts. So Yeah, there's a lot of room for weirdness in horror. It's very yeah. forgiving for exploring different things. Yeah. And yeah, that's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah, that's what I really that's like about it. Yeah. So now you're a horror director. <laughs> you're <gonna laughs> yeah, keep it that much. way? You're going to stick with it? Uh, I think so. I guess we'll see what the next thing is. Whatever Zach writes. If it's a rom-com, then we might have to do something. <laughs> I don't know if you rom-com. It could be a zom-rom-com. Zom-com-rom. <laughs> zom-com-rom. So did you guys both study acting? How did you... Yeah, to, I came to act. To, from a fairly academic route. I, I got the bug in college. Um, it was sort of liberal arts, general theater major. So then after a couple of years of saving money, I went to grad school to get my MFA in acting. Um, 
straight away. And then after saving money again for a year, I moved to New York to try to pursue it. This was the first audition I had. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I was nailed it. Under a week. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of bizarre. Holy uh, shit. Yeah. That never happens to anybody ever in the history <laughs> of New York. The serendipity is pretty remarkable. I, yeah. I have friends that come up, you know, they're moving here. They ask me, you know, how did you get your agent? How did you do it? And I was like, I got really lucky. I just, they needed a me, and I was the me. Well, Mark, there. some of it's really testament to Mark Rappaport, our producer, who basically the way we initially tried casting people mm-hmm. was posting on Backstage and all the acting. Right. Right. Casting networks. Yeah. Casting networks, yeah, all of the, the accessible ones. But we, would, we didn't get that many applications. We weren't offering a ton of money necessarily it was going to be a hard shoot so we ended up searching you can search in like the backlogs of all these websites with physical descriptions so we would get these huge lists and then contact everyone that seemed good and we saw zach had just got online and we contacted him and he kind of half-assed his first audition very true. so we emailed him we're like please can you send another audition <laughs> <laughs> wait what websites did you look at the backlog of backstage oh okay not backstage oh, because that oh. sometimes is a scary confusion. <laughs> <laughs> right. One's for actors, the other's for prostitutes. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Having midgets delivered to your door, yeah. Did very <laughs> different, very different. <laughs> very different. Yeah, they, were, they were quite persistent. They asked me to do it twice, and finally I was like, sure, and I shot at 2 a.m. <laughs> and was just like, whatever, I just want to get this audition Oh, it was done. a video audition. Yeah, yeah it was they, a video audition. Oh, I, was, that's I mean, they I had that. just moved to the city. I didn't have my stuff yet. Like, I was still, I was waiting for the truck to come the next day to deliver half of my furniture i was just moving in and so i was like all right well if this is the way that it works let's give it a shot yeah nice. next day i was uh i was on the upper well, west we br- side in person doing yeah we brought stuff. him in yeah. and the thing we needed from him we realized because his audition was good on camera but we hadn't we felt weird asking him to pretend like he was being tortured by himself <laughs> so we called him in yeah that came- sounds like back page that's more like <laughs> <laughs> that's more like it exactly but yeah i said this five videos of your show. so we came in and we literally just said okay we're gonna pretend to brand you and you're gonna get branded i mean we did that and he was completely convincing and scary whoa and we're like okay <laughs> yeah that was probably the most difficult part to watch i thought oh, the really? branding wow i thought it was so brutal to see it done once and then you have to see it done to, i think it was you branded three people in a row yeah, yeah a bunch of people yeah. that i thought was probably the most brutal brutal part of the entire movie just again and again and again and yeah. And then it getting all nasty and infected. Like that was <laughs> that was probably the most brutal part. And there's like gorier parts, but some about just somebody getting their skin burned off. Yeah, it's so sadistic. Then the sadism of the guys, it was like that scene in Reservoir Dogs was like it was just the sadism <laughs> of that scene is half the brutality, I think. Yeah. That's Kudos really to Nicole for those uh flatter comparison. Incredible like makeup and yeah. Uh, uh, Nicole effects. Hernandez and Tanya Tanya. Tanya. Um, we we're happy to hear that because that's our favorite scene. A lot of people have trouble with the soup scene. And some oh yeah, that was pretty out. gross too. <laughs> yeah, one good story for production wise for the branding scene is that that's the one scene of the film that balances tones the most hmm. where he's saying funny lines and calling them ridiculous nicknames, right, but it's right. also terrifying and they get branded. Yeah. And we weren't sure if that scene would ever work. Hmm. So when we looked for an editor, uh, Keaton and Mark, the two producers had the idea of we narrow it down to four or five, and mm-hmm. then we sent all of that footage to four editors. And then they all cut a version of the scene. 
And huh. we went with the editor who had the best version. And that was Nick Voitas. Oh, in, that's so cool. So that Burbank. was their kind of audition to be the editor. Yeah, because it's so hard to tell who's going to be a good editor. Right. And there's no An editing reel is like the biggest joke of a reel. Cinematography right. makes sense. Directing, you're pushing what you're reading. The, the purpose of it and then editing how do you even know right but then nick was so good i swore i would only work with someone in new york so mm-hmm. you can be there in person but he was so incredible that's that awesome. we just shipped it out to burbank and he edited the movie and saved it a little funny story about uh daniel went to columbia so he went to columbia uh after we shot it that, that was a big part of the rush and his first class he got to take like an elective in um oh this was, was bad it, editing yeah, yeah. At and the film school. At the film school. He had to take, like, it, that wasn't where he was going to school, but, and he get took Otto to the class, and they actually needed a scene for everyone to edit. And okay. this is when we were doing the audition, so we thought we'll do the same system. We'll give everyone in the class the footage, uh, okay. and the teacher the footage, and they'll all try. And he sends it, and then like a week goes by, and the teacher hasn't answered, and he hasn't heard about it. He's getting nervous. So Daniel double checks the tape, and we remember that. <laughs> So we let the bad guys uh, improvise, and a lot of the improv was anti-Semitic. Oh, yeah. fuck. <laughs> yeah, because cause we're Jewish, so it's one of the only realms we can go into comfort, comfortably. Yeah, without being offended, offending other people. So we just let some of the bad guys riff. Yeah, and it got really bad. So then oh, I realized, man. and I sent the teacher an apology email, like, sorry. She said, yeah, I watched this. It's definitely not appropriate. <laughs> and then I just didn't show up to that class for the rest of the semester. You, you sent it to Ramaz by accident? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was our that was our high school. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I didn't know that story. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that soup scene was pretty nice. It made me wonder. You must have researched a bunch of the hazing shit that some of these frats really yeah. do. What were some of the nastiest stories that you came across in your research? We hmm, nastiest stories. We show a lot of this. The branding is real, and we got really. That. Yeah, a lot of people get branded. Um, a lot of people get branded. Yeah, I know a few friends. people that have brands on them. And it's still on them. Jesus, yeah. God. Yeah, it's, that's insane. It's and that's insane. just to haze? That's part of the hazing process or once you're in? In other words, could you oh. not be admitted to the frat and still have their brand on your ass? That's oh, good that's a good question. That's a good question. I think once you're I think in, they, end, they brand you. I'm maybe pretty, that's the last. They know you know that's the finale. Yeah, but it. we like yeah. we like doing it first in the movie just because then like you're locked in. Right after yeah. you do that, you're not you can't go. Yeah. Right. So as soon as they get that on you, you have such a psychological barrier to not continue. What's right. That, like the cost, Co- sunk cost, sunk cost, sunk cost of how much skin's been burned. Branding is real. We know pe- people came up to us after a screening recently saying that the soup they they did that but with a smoothie. But it was animal guts and stuff, oh, like disgusting stuff. Oh, the, I can tell you the grossest one I've heard. What? But it's it's horrible and all. Let's do it. It's for the, this podcast can handle. Um, they, my 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 brother's friend was recently forced to vomit into a general like vomit area, and then he had to eat back some of the vomit. Oh the Possibility that it was other people's. Oh Jesus oh, yeah. God! And he said it very matter of factly to my friend. To my brother and his friends. That's pretty bad. And then my brother actually, from that, not the movie, decided not to pledge. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> that was the end of it. He's like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And I heard of something where it's Edward Forty hands, where they would tie two forties yep. to each of your hands. Yep. But this frat did a twist on it where they locked everyone in a small room 
and they couldn't leave until they finished that in a giant keg, which is, it's impossible to finish. Wow. And they had a strobe light going with the same song on repeat. And the only way to finish it is to drink it and then puke it up or pee. Holy so the shit. room, I think they were in there for like 20 hours. And the room damn. was just a uh, cesspool. But as, as gross as all this stuff. This it, was in the South. Yeah, wow. yeah the South, it seems like they're more intense. Yeah, the, the South way. knows where it's at. <laughs> they're really intense. But the gr- all the gross stuff is one thing. and that. It, but the thing that scares me the most, and when I was thinking about it for my younger brother to do it, is at some point you do have to trust these kids basically with your life. Right, right. You really do. Because at some point most of the people that get hazed are drunk to the point of yeah. like, they'll be sick. Yeah. And I knew kids around, the, because we're, you were talking before about what motivated us. I'm like looking back, maybe this was part of it. Some kids I knew who were like bullies mm-hmm. in high school went on to be hazing kids. And I would hear stories from at college, like they were doing it in a whole different way. Yeah. And it's a nightmare. Because they were bullies. Because they're bullies. Like it's like it's So a, they, they're naturally sadistic and they really want to fuck with the culture. <laughs> exactly. Versus doing yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you enjoy like are you doing it? Is it for a purpose or are you just really getting a kick out of it? Right. There was a story in the news not long ago about a, a pledge who was he didn't drink alcohol and, and the fraternity tried to respect that, but they made a rule that he had to drink water for every beer that the other pledges were drinking and chugging and because they were drinking alcohol they eventually puked it up um their liver just reacted and got it out of their system but the guy drinking water didn't have that reflex and actually ended up getting brain damage from chug so much water um compared to the rest of the beer so it's i mean this the environment is sadistic even even in different lights it's 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 sadistic it's it's insane doesn't happen people on ecstasy when they're they just get hyper dehydrated or thirsty and then they just drink so much water they're they just die i have heard of that and the water i have heard like a shock jock in la die that way too Wow. Get like a fun like water water drinking contest. Thank you. <laughs> it's these fra- these bullies' fault that the movie's so fucked up because towards the end that last haze with the rat in the bucket mm-hmm. that was the last one that we had to say if the audience is watching they would know okay this isn't a frat it's definitely something more yeah and we came up with stuff and then our friends and now I've heard way worse so we're like how bad does it have to get. So then eventually we Googled medieval torture and we went through a list and this one just worked thematically. Yeah. But then we found out after the fact that Too Fast, Too Furious actually has the same exact scene. Yeah, I knew a, P- that I... a PG-13 version. So it shows you yeah. that if you really put effort into a set piece, you can make it pretty gross. Yeah. Because <laughs> I actually remember I was in London as a kid and we went to the London Dungeon, which oh, yeah. is a whole exhibition of medieval torture. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've been there. It's awesome. That and I heard about the rat torture, which they would actually do that. They'd put a rat on somebody's stomach and interrogate them and put like a uh, cage over the rat and a fire over the cage. So the rat has no choice other than a burrow through the person's body. Uh. To to get out, yeah. Um, and I always thought that that was amazing that that should be in a movie. And then I remember seeing it <laughs> so before seeing it in pledge. I saw it somewhere else, and, and I and I think it was also Game on a of, TV show. Game of, Game of Thrones, Thrones first. Yeah. yeah, Game of Thrones does it. Even though nineteen eighty four also does something similar to it as well. Oh really? Yeah. With a rat? With a, a cage? I can't quite remember exactly what it is, but they basically put this like helmet on the person with. Oh, that's rats worse. And stuff in it. Oh, and that, the work. rats have to go through their, their head? Yeah. Whoa. Uh, oh, that's yeah. hardcore. That's tough, tough, tough. <laughs> that's, yeah, you got to draw the line. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with the rat being blended, was that based on a true story? Because I would imagine you can die that way. 
Like if you get, if you in, ingest that kind of bacteria, there was also a whole documentary uh-huh. on rats and I couldn't get through the trailer. It was so gross. The Baltimore, right? The rat. Yeah, I yeah. think so. But it's all about rats all over the, like different cities and how bad uh-huh. these infestations are. And they have these weird parasites that cause their, I, somebody was just telling me this. There's a kind of parasite that causes their brains to make them run towards danger. It, 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 pretty much reverses their fight or flight reflex so that they run towards danger and they start attacking people and dogs and wow. it turns that they're like zombie rats. Holy yeah. Shit. It's like a real thing. Oh, that's because petrifying. of a parasite. It sounds like Damn. a scarier zombievers. Yeah. <laughs> and if people get bit by them or I would imagine ingest them, then then they get the same stuff and oh my God. Yeah. kill them or whatever. I know a lot of friends who have eaten animals. But they all say it's like that was not the biggest thing. With the frats? Yeah. Really? But they most a lot of them are goldfish. Oh, okay, but yeah, that's not as horrible. But a lot of people then also just say like the gut stuff. But right, I guess you just hope once you eat it that they'll take you to the hospital if you get sick. <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> yeah, people do. die from these hazing rituals all the time. Yeah, I don't know about all the time, but uh, a lot every a year. Lot. Is that right? Every year, there's at least one. Well, I mean, you got to know with these these fraternities, they've been around for decades and decades and decades or generations even. Yeah. So they sweep this under the carpet a lot. Yeah. <laughs> But I do want to say one thing in defense of them, which is that I do know a lot of frats that not only are nice, but the hazing processes, as brutal as it is, actually do seem to bond these kids and they end up with friends. And it seems like something innate to a lot of initiation rituals throughout history is like some kind of pain up front Mm -hmm. and then you're in. But the dying and the torture, that just seems like, you know, those guys are just having fun. Yeah. And they don't care. Those kids are pledges and they might not make it. Yeah. But I think that's why the movie expands its themes so well because i i didn't pledge a fraternity but i was on a baseball team that made me do some similar things when right. i moved up to varsity what did they make um, you do on a baseball team? <laughs> i mean it wasn't nearly as brutal as, as they make you do anything I mean, on a baseball team. no yeah so one of the big things was that they would make you take a, a a dip of tobacco and wouldn't give you a spit cup and you'd have to do that on the way to your first game you'd have to dip tobacco and then and hold you, it and yeah if uh. you didn't if you spit it on the bus the coach would get mad so you end up swallowing all that and oh, get them so much man. nicotine in your system that you puke it up oh. uh there was a lot of like icy hot on your balls that was nice. a, that was uh, a big right. one as That's well just a Tuesday so night it, for you me. know yeah which, it's a pastime seem pedestrian compared to the things we're doing in pledge but are still like, cruel and yeah and, and ultimately this coming from this idea of being a gatekeeper for some sort of sacred bullshit that's now, it does make sense, though. It does bond people together. Like a lot not, of I, I, mili- yeah. people in the military talk about how Hell Week bonds them together sure. and SEALs and like that. I just think that there are other ways. I've, yeah, I think I've bonded with my castmates in theater plays before, too. You know, you don't have to hurt each other. To... That's because you all fuck each other in well. theater. It's <laughs> a whole other kind of bonding. Uh, but I still think that, that there are more creative ways to do it. This will sound weird, but I think the pain element to initiation is yeah. really important. Like even picky, like the the blood thing. When you, what do you like about the theater? <laughs> so, you don't even know. Well, in Ramaz, you know, like the people who Our were high in school. the arts were the people getting laid, while we were busy. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you ran a lot I think of. That might have just and, been yeah. you, and yeah. not really. Yeah, it makes total just sense. the arts. Yeah. That's why I decided to go into film. <laughs> <laughs> Little do we know. Yeah, hinge profile doesn't really change much unless no. you get on Raya. Yeah, being in film in New York is very different than LA. How's that? Because if you're in film in LA, it's actually impressive. But in New York, people say, "Oh, this guy's delusional." No, it's <laughs> really no, no, yeah. no. He's exaggerating. Daniel's self-deprecating to the point of uh, hyperbole. It's it's more that it's um it's th- 
we talked it's i think a lot of people are not as focused on it they think it's cool mm-hmm. but it's just not the primary like lifeblood here it's in like, new york in new york yeah that's part like of the reason finance media it's like a smaller but it's a smaller pond do you find it easier yeah. here yeah to pitch oh to pitch. or to like to to get the movies made and because in la it's just it's just it's such a feeding frenzy. Yeah, I think production-wise, well, Daniel, you can maybe speak better to this. Uh, in terms of meetings, I don't, I don't, there are not so many meetings that I've had here, and mm-hmm. a lot more in LA. A lot more decisions seem to be made right. there. But in terms of production and getting actors and and new talent on the on the production side, like cinematographers, I like New York a lot more because I feel like it's a, like you said, a smaller pond and a smaller mm-hmm. community. Right. And a lot of people know each other. A lot of people right. know each other. And there's a tightness to it. Yeah, yeah. and and it's a good spirit because. With these movies, you, you're you're taking more of a share of the movie than the upfront mm-hmm. budget. So you want that kind of enthusiasm. And M. Night Shyamalan talked about it for his comeback for the visit. He brought in a lot of new filmmakers, hmm. and he thought that helped a lot because he kept talking about how he was over reliant on like craft, which basically I guess meant that he had like the best people in the world, so he didn't have to check on the. I don't know how. Hmm. I didn't see Glass though, so who knows if this is good advice? Oh, I saw Glass. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like New York culturally is also a little bit more straightforward and you don't have meetings about meetings like New Yorkers are a little bit more of a get it done kind of culture. Whereas in L.A., you can be having meetings about movies for years yeah. and then hope that they get done. Yeah, that's a really <clears> good point that you, it's not a hard rule because, you know, there are types of people in both. But generally in L.A., um, when I talk to someone, they say, yeah, you know, I'm working on like the script is with that manager and mm-hmm. other things with this. And in New York, people will just say the thing that they're making. Right. They'll say, oh, I have this 60% of the way there, and I'm trying to make it in October. And it's a mm-hmm. lot more, um, it's less abstract. Yeah. I think that's just how New Yorkers generally are. And no, yeah, what is that Woody Allen quote? Like, and when he goes to LA and Annie Hall, it's like, I'm developing a concept for a concept. <laughs> I think it's something. Like, <laughs> I think it's, and it really does, like, you can fall into that. Cause I, and I think I, I always imagined, because it was like, for malicious reasons, but going out there, I think it's just a lot of smart people who get excited about, or, or talented people who get excited about talking about it, and then it, it does take a long time to, to start. The downside here is you can take a lot more action, but it's, a, it's definitely a smaller group and lower budgets, at least is our plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's so many actors as well. You mentioned I'm attached to X in LA based actors and I just I don't hear that talk in New York at all I said, right I've got the audition I booked it or I didn't book it I've never heard I'm attached to blank and I'm now in this limbo but place my, right my hope is I think indie film really got tanked for a while in terms of its uh, ability to go to market and now it seems like maybe it's coming back and it, and I, my hope is from Pledge and our learning experience that low budget doesn't mean low production value mm-hmm. and it, you can really get so much these days yeah and and yeah a big part of that is william babcock who is the dp <laughs> he knows how to make something look really good on Lisa the yeah it does not look low budget it looks yeah. like some blumhouse could have made although I, they're relatively low budget but it looks it, <laughs> it does not look like you were skimping anywhere yeah i Thank wish you. i could take some of the credit but it's literally all <laughs> so is it the key to doing that is like for filmmakers who don't have the biggest budget and they want to get something out that looks good and professional because the, the kiss of death for for an indie movie is it doesn't look high production value right yeah but what are i mean clearly you weren't working with a, a super high budget but uh yeah it was super really you guess just divided by it was 180 that right? 180 no okay, ten thousand kickstarter holy shit Really? Yeah, you're you're the only person we've told the budget to of like weeks of. <laughs> Whoa! I'm, I'm happy to cut it out if you. No, can. keep no, it. I don't, keep I don't it. It's 180. Damn. Yeah, it looked amazing. 
Thank That's you. That's shocking. A lot of it was backgammon. And again, it was it was William Babcock. And when we looked for a DP. Met your DP, yeah. Yeah, we looked for someone who uh, would be able to do that. And he had that capability aside from being, uh, well, two reasons we liked him a lot was one that his experience was mainly gaffing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of DPs obsess over camera and some come from being an AC. Right. But cinematography is maybe like 90% lighting and then 10% right. knowing the camera. So knowing that we felt would give him a big advantage. And then in his reel, he took a lot of, um, he had a real POV with what he was doing mm-hmm. where some reels would just be very well lit and have kind of even lighting. And you could tell they had a pretty traditional lighting setup, but he would do things like light a whole scene with one key that's behind the character. Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, this guy can make things look a little more stylized. And cause the whole movie takes place indoors. We knew that someone with that lighting creativity would, we didn't realize how good he would be, but he was just yeah. awesome. And Steven Ochinski, who was the gaffer on the film helped a lot. And it, yeah. And just one other thing about it was um, going into production. Uh, I was terrified that because we were we were trying really hard to to get the organizational stuff and to finish the script, and I I was imagining it as this top down thing, so I was really scared giving away a script that wasn't fully finished. Mm-hmm. But there, I think the best possible thing is not having a full plan, but surrounding yourself with really not just talented people but opinionated people. Mm. We had a lot of arguments on set, <laughs> a lot of really bad arguments. Yeah, we, it was a lot. We thought it was our doom when it was going on. We thought the set was always on the verge of imploding. It was such bad fights. But I think now in retrospect. I'm glad for it because on sets where everything goes smoothly, it means maybe we didn't really think that hard about That's interesting. The, the decision. What kind of arguments? Um, the way we would block the scene, lines. I had some actors for good, for good re- Like it worked out, but they would argue with me about monologues that I had written mm-hmm. that, and they would try to re- rewrite it with me. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty, uh, Babcock, com- yeah. I'm pretty calm all the time, but I think I yelled once on set <laughs> and that was in the final fight scene uh, when spoiler but zach bird over here survives then he has to kill max and somehow spoiler whatever somehow in the fight he needs to get a knife right and we just couldn't figure out how to get him a knife in a realistic way and everyone was pitching these ideas and then Mm. people started running with one and i just was like no we can't do that idea and people were like why because it's stupid (laughs) and everyone looked at me so confused like wow he's really mad (laughs) and then eventually we came up with the idea of if the other one gets stabbed in the right way and he falls near him he can take it from him but we were going through ideas of oh maybe the other guy can throw him a knife and Mm -hmm. they'll be like friends and we're like no no we can't do that yeah i think ideas are a lot cheaper than i realized and it's just if everyone like everyone everyone should have Got ideas about everything, ideally. So you in, you pretty much punted the idea or the brainstorming process into the, the entire cast and crew. Like, hey, he needs to get a knife. How do we do this? Yeah. yeah. And every, cool. everyone was pitching ideas. <laughs> yeah. I think that the knife thing was me, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, right. the oh there it is. But there we go. To, not to take <laughs> nice. full credit. Uh, but Should. I will also say, though, just to, to give it a bit of a caveat, because the reason why you're able to have these creative conversations and still get things done is having a, a badass AD. So Jeff Schiffman, you know, he and I argued about the Rams game earlier on Facebook, but I'm I just will tell him I still respect him. <laughs> Even I don't respect that stupid call. Uh, I respect <laughs> Jeff Schiffman more than about anybody else because we, we would not have gotten the movie done because sometimes yeah. you had to say, okay, someone has to make a decision here. Mm, yeah. uh, we have to we have to move forward. We've got to get things on uh, in the can or we're not going to yeah, get he, through everything. Miracle right. worker. Yeah, yeah, that's a great shout out because <laughs> cool. the AD is 
I think the most important hire on a low-budget indie is the AD because they're really the captain of the ship that's going to work the schedule and make the movie happen. Mm-hmm. And an AD that can work your resources in the right way and be creative can open up, can make the mo- makes the movie a lot better. And he also came up with the idea of the severed head. Yeah, that's true. That oh, wasn't nice. in the script. And he said, how is he going to drag the body all the way down there so quickly? And I said, um, it's a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> he said, what if he cuts his head off? I said, all right, that's awesome. <laughs> and then Keaton called Lisa, and then she made that head. We did the werewolf and uncaged, and she made the head yeah, really nice. fast, really cheap. And that that's another, um, yeah, they, we did not, I didn't realize that. He, he's phenomenal and um, was celebrating. And that was another thing with... Um, prosthetics and, and cinematography a big part of it is we weren't able obviously to pay very high salaries to anyone I'd, i don't we didn't take a salary but we tried to make the pitch this is a great venue mm-hmm. for you to try something so <clears throat> she, she lisa first is forced yeah i can't it sounds like first forced i can't it's forced when i say forced. i can't i can't get like it out forest without the e oh it's, mm-hmm. but that's confusing okay i'll work on, i'll practice on my own time <laughs> but and that the, and the yeah. last crew member to shout out is Shout out is Clarissa Garcia Fresco, who's there's a one more designer. definitely, but yeah, there are a lot more. But I would just want to say that like we have it, we barely talk about sound, and that's a good thing. Oh because my god, it's yeah. so crystal clear, and I could not believe after all the indie films that I've done recently and TV shows, could not believe the quality of the sound on this mm. thing. Uh, so Robbie Kush, another man Kenny near Zion. my heart. Yeah, a lot of heroes. Yeah. And that's what it takes to make an indie film. Yeah. And make an indie film not feel like an indie film. Yeah. Because this did not feel like an indie film. It felt like a very solidly budgeted film. That is fantastic to hear. No, totally. Totally did. And it's credit, yeah, it's credit to all of those, I think, all those people um, and everyone having an ownership of of the story. Yeah, that's true. Everyone did feel a sense of ownership. That's a great word. I think everyone who was on set contributed something, Mm. whether it was a small idea, a line, um, a piece of set design. Well, that ownership has got to be really inspiring for the crew because they feel like they're part of something and that their voice matters. Yeah. And because of that, they'll naturally work way harder and have more faith in you and appreciate you as the director, producer. So yeah, I think there's there's something to that idea. Yeah, One flip side true. It's, if you give people autonomy and a sense of ownership, then mm-hmm. that's a pretty good environment for them to do their best work. Yeah. So this movie really knocks on her <clears throat> theory where one person has the whole thing right. in mind from start to finish. This was really just collaborative and crazy. <laughs> one thing though, on the, the flip side of this is logistically we maybe didn't take enough ownership <laughs> <laughs> of the organization of some of the things. And that's one area that we want to work on because that doesn't seem like productive fighting is when like we just haven't been able to, like right. my glasses always reflected light yep. and would infuriate the gaffing and, and the, Babcock, the cinematographer <laughs> that we hadn't handled it. But that's just like pretty much hands on deck. Right. Yeah, that was my main lesson um, right. as the director for this film is that it's okay for everyone to contribute, but I have to project more confidence because people like knowing that the ship is headed in the right direction. Right. And even if I don't know what's going on, they like knowing that. Mm. So for the next one, I'll pretend like I know a lot more. Than I, <laughs> I think it's a fine line that you're speaking to, though. Like you have to project authority and they have to know that that you have a vision and a plan, yeah. or at least they need to think that you do. Um, but also for the, to, to be the kind of director who cannot be so precious about their vision and their this and their that right. and take ideas that are good ideas and utilize them and listen to p- other people when they have input. It's, it sounds like that is the kind of ideal balance for a good, happy, healthy, productive set. 
Yeah, you said that better than yeah, me. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, there was very little that was super precious, which was helpful. Although at times I did feel like, you know, I had to defend Zach's script quite a bit to say, you know, guys, hey, wait a second. We're getting away from the script so much right now. This is what was written. Can we just make sure we get something like that? Not really a conversation actors should necessarily be having. But I'm glad you're fighting the good fight. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, it's I, Zach wrote a good story, even if it's parts of the story... Uh, were filled in at other places. This is something that we had opinions on because we cared about it, and we cared yeah. about it because of what originally began there. Um, and and Daniel's calm demeanor. Uh, <laughs> at times, it, you know, maybe we were running a little rampant, but it was always like, okay, Daniel's ready. Like, oh, we're gonna get the camera up now. So I don't know what we're gonna shoot, but let's let's just kind of see what happens. Make uh, real things happen in front of each other. Pretty interesting. It was very nice of him then and very nice of him now to say it was good script because there were definite weaknesses. I think one thing, though, for filmmakers and, and the qual I think production value mm-hmm. is something where if you use your limitations, like a big part of the inspiration for this, uh, my dad would always tell me about Knife on the Water coming up, coming up, which is that Roman Polanski movie that I have not seen. <laughs> it's just the story, which he'd always tell me that he didn't have a lot of money, so he filmed it all on a boat. Mm-hmm. And then automatically it's the tension of you don't want to go off the boat. And oh, so, so use that to your advantage. Use it to your advantage. And I think a lot of indies, if you can get talented people working for you, that doesn't have to be where the money can just go toward finding the right location that creates this built-in production value. Mm-hmm. And then you really can catch up. That This is unsolicited yeah. and possibly foolish. And, foolish and just a lot of close-ups because a Hollywood movie and you can have the same close-up. Just an actor takes up most of the frame, the rest is out of focus, and the shot looks the same. <laughs> but once you go to wides, that's when you're going to show your budget. And he just gave away so, the secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, so keep it tight as, as long as you can. Like, Good Time is pretty much all close-ups. Yeah. I loved that movie. Yeah, oh, yeah it's great. Too. Good time. Loved great. that movie. Yeah, it's amazing. They brought it to 8 million millimeter at some point or 16 millimeter they had a film print of it i oh, think really? at the angelica for like a weekend somehow Damn. i didn't get to go see it though but i wanted to oh. but yeah that i watched that at awesome. your house sec. yeah that was, oh you watched it yeah yeah i should um if they have the millimeter we could um yeah we should we should find try to get that i would love to see it and i'm very excited for uh, their new movie uncut yeah what are they doing next uncut gems oh which is something is... they were trying to make for a really long time but now from good time they're gonna they got martin scorsese and adam sandler what? Yeah, it's like executive producing, and Adam Sandler's in it. Holy shit! Yeah, oh, they really are. They have they wrapped it yet, or is it in production? I think they wrapped. That's amazing. And it's shot in New York. jumped on board. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. shot here. They're one of the, they're they're really inspiring. Yeah, they're New big York. New York guys. Yeah, I love it. That's super cool. So awesome. seeing the movie in its finished form and having worked on it for a while, what would you looking at it retrospectively? What would you have invested more in, and what would you have invested less in? I don't necessarily mean money. It can be time, effort, energy, or money, but what would you have invested more in and what would you invest less in seeing the final picture? Hmm. That's a good question. I'll start with like, there's such an interesting, from an actor's perspective and the movies that kind of rise above the crust often have that name actor in it. Um, But at the same time, you know, I've worked with some folks that have been really nice, but they're not bringing the same, they're there to give the director what, they have been hired for as opposed to feeling like they have an impact that the movie could take them somewhere that they are invested in the entire process as well so i i'm quite curious about you know whether or not the name on the movie can obviously sell more things which opens right. more doors but at the same time you 
potentially can lose a little bit of that raw creative force. There, there are obviously some actors that would be great, I'm sure. Um, but I'm, I'm curious your guys' thoughts about that. We've I, been talking about that a little bit lately. I would invest more in art design because Clarissa did a phenomenal job. And we actually had plans. There's a little bit of art that shows up in the movie, but we had plans to do a lot more with the art as background hmm. to try okay. to connect some dots and leave some hints of like a broader idea. And we just didn't have the money. Like and art that symbolically would speak to the themes on of the, the walls. Movie? Yeah. Oh, all right. And like, and also just to enrich the the the, the house more um, and make it more fun to look at. And I think. That's just a thing where we just thought at the time we didn't have the money mm-hmm. and she could do so much with so little already that we didn't really worry about her. But now in retrospect, she could have really made that go a long way. So that's what that's something I wish. Even though it might have been we might have ended up cutting it all. <laughs> I would have liked to have at least tried. Right. <laughs> because it would have, it maybe would have been cool. It might have been distracting. Um I would say one of the parts of a film that don't get um, as glorified is just the sound because mm-hmm. it's only a couple people who do that job but doing that right i think we could have invested more there um even though it was all done by one person so it took him a really long wow. time and we probably could have finished it uh the movie like six months earlier just because of sound um yeah because getting that right takes a really long time and the other place that i think we would invest is <gasps> getting the opening right we spent a lot of resources on it and I mm-hmm. think it was well spent because for an indie like this, people don't give a shit about your movie because every name that pops up, they don't know who that is. Right. So trying to get people to care and buy in in the first two minutes is really difficult. Hmm. So like we spent for a drone, a steady cam, and really threw everything oh, wow. at the screen to try to get people into it. Right, that opening drone shot. Yeah, yeah I remember that. And the chase in the woods we shot three times. Oh yeah, wow. it's pretty insane. And that was a big part of what took the movie so long is we had to wait for the leaves to change. Oh for the wow. Third try. <laughs> that overhead shot of that area looked beautiful. Where did you shoot, by the way? That's a we great. shot the film in an Airbnb in Nourishelle, New York. Oh, that's great. So that's like thirty minutes north of here. And the drone shot was near Ramapo College did, in New Jersey. Did Airbnb hosts know you were filming a movie? Yeah. We thought about <laughs> telling them it was a rom-com, but we have to be transparent at that point. Right. But they did give us a good deal because oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they house swap- They lived with uh, Zach's mother in their apartment. Oh, wow. So it was like a house swap situation. It didn't go well. No? Yeah, it didn't go well. <laughs> she, they the whole production animals. almost fell apart. But... They brought animals. My mom's a, a, a neurotic Jewish Upper West Side mom, <laughs> and they brought multiple animals into the home in addition to them. And I had not prepared my mom, so she was furious and like quarantined them to my room. <laughs> when you is, say animals, you mean things other than cats and dogs? They brought a cat and a rabbit and a gerbil. And or maybe no cat, at least a rabbit and a gerbil. And a bird, I think. They didn't bring the, they would never bring a bird to my uh, mom's so the birds were, the birds My mom's petrified of birds. <laughs> oh, the birds yeah. stayed on set. Um, so my mom, so it became very stressful those first three days. Mm-hmm. I was in a state of like constant shock almost because <laughs> I was always waiting for the call because they called us the day we were loading all the stuff into their house and said, we can't, we're canceling the entire thing because your mom's being so difficult. Whoa. <laughs> and so those first three days, and then finally my mom was so nice again and so accommodating, but those three days I was just waiting. <laughs> yeah, the whole production hung on the fulcrum of a nice Jewish mother. 
Like, <laughs> God, it was scary. I think that's how the Godfather got me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's a mind blower that that was somebody's house. That whole fraternity house was that was a home. Yeah, an Airbnb. You can that's stay crazy. there for two thirty two thirty a night. But it did look completely <laughs> different because Clarissa redecorated it, which is something I always forget. Oh right? my God, yeah. Clarissa did incredible work to it because so, they had all this random design and she made it a very um, like tungsten red and oh, orange. Tried to, did you guys all live in the house <laughs> yeah. as you filmed? Nice. <laughs> That's economical. Oh, yeah. Everyone did, except I I was with Mark, the producer, at our friend Luch's house, who's the third producer, who doesn't like to be called Luch. It's his old nickname, but I, I'm not going to stop. And <laughs> and his parents, we didn't get along. So it's a lot of housing arrangements. This really was the tone of the overall movie, like a, accepting a degree of, of, of yeah. unpleasantness and uh, not getting along. I was the last actor hired, so there weren't any more bedrooms for me. So I actually commuted the whole t- almost the whole time. I yeah. stayed with Daniel a couple times, but oh, man. I would we would shoot from roughly six p.m. until uh, six a.m. and then I would get on a train about an hour and a half to Grand Central, back to the Upper West, where I was staying with a friend. Oh hell! Uh, and then would sleep for six hours or so, and then do the whole thing. Or, like do the reverse back to set all over again. How long yeah. were you guys filming for? 18 oh. days. And then, oh, wow, that's a quick shoot. But then we tried on the opening two other times. <laughs> <laughs> right. And right. there was oh, the last thing I would say to invest in, which I learned from on Cage with Mark, is uh, the cast. Mm-hmm. And m- maybe not money, because it's however much you can get them for. You should, you know, the budget's only yeah, so yeah. big, but investing a lot of time. Because finding people is really, really hard, and it takes a long time. So we started casting before the script was even done, because mm-hmm. we knew that it would take a few months to find these incredible dudes like Zach Bird, Philip Andre Botello, Aaron Dallavilla, Cameron. Yeah, and again, Joe, that, John Louis. the the website's yeah, your yeah. oyster if you do it right, like backstage and casting networks. You, well, I don't know about casting. It just takes a long. It time. just takes a long. Yeah. What do you do? You go and back. There's earlier. a search function that I didn't even know existed. Okay. Yeah, you I can was, pick height, age, type. Oh. And, and it's then, all okay. And then you can reach out to them specifically and you contact instead them of waiting for them to reach out to you. Oh. So it accelerates it and it gives you a lot more. Like you don't have to wait on them. Or, right. If those actors are being honest, we you know from the other end, we we are the ones that decide what our type is, how tall we are, you know, how old we are. So I mean, you, <laughs> so have you can to, catfish ex- producers. Directly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, being honest, I think, is a better policy for a young actor. But I right. would say that you know. If, if that's a way to use it, that's one way to do it. Yeah, and also, ultimately, you don't want to get hooked on... A ty- like, we were very open to types. We just... That was, like, our starting point mm-hmm. and the general archetype of what we're trying to fill. But there's so many thousands of people. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of times also with act... Yeah, a lot of it also we were looking for was how much of uh, their actual personality they could bring to it, which mm-hmm. I think went a long way. Like, Ar- Max, the short villain. Yeah. Which won't be his favorite... I shouldn't say it, but his sentence is favorite sentence in the world. Um, but his audition was indistinguishable from the way he spoke to us before and after the audition, which was pretty... He was the first audition of the whole movie, and we didn't audition anyone else for Max. Yeah, he's unbelievable. He came in and he like... Just we, nailed it. He's, yeah. Well, we said haze me. We didn't even have the whole script written. So we're like, all right, let's just improvise it. We had him do the monologue, and then we had him haze me thinking he would go relaxed. Other people who had done it had been awkward, mm-hmm. but he slapped me in the face and threw water in my face. Holy shit. And yeah. was like screaming. <laughs> had you acted before? Who, me? Yeah. Yeah, I acted in Uncaged. I, okay. I'm in Uncaged. No, but like before that, I mean, were you more interested in producing and did you kind of find your way, or, or writing oh. rather, and find your way into acting by accident? Or yeah. Or was that something you always wanted to do? It was only because of, uh, I always enjoyed performing, but acting was only because Daniel, I really had not a lot going on 
I wasn't in college or anything when Daniel made Uncaged. Oh, okay. So that, and then I really enjoyed it. Uh, That's awesome. So I, I like it. I don't, I don't like as much. I don't know if I have the. It's 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 a really hard pursuit. I'm much more focused on writing, but I mm-hmm. love to do it. I would say though, just as actors, don't slap the other person for real in your <laughs> auditions. Typically, I mean that that worked for this character, and then these guys are more than willing to roll with the punches, quite literally. But. Uh, no, don't don't slap your scene partner for real. Um, Unless I have a dumb face like Zach. <laughs> but I will I will say though, your advice about that, I mean, it's something that going from theater to film is very interesting. In theater, there's this understanding that you are you are you, and then you can put on the character in whatever term and definition that means to you. Um, casting directors in film are wonderful people, um, but the producers that they work for, or, or they themselves often don't have that same kind of uh, allowance for that leap to occur. Mm-hmm. So walking into the room being the thing that, that is expected from you is a pretty darn good audition strategy. You just, That's cool, I had an actor oh. teacher one time that um, had to do a funny sort of like Norwegian accent and, and a very awkward thing. So he went to the audition and was working on the accent so much that he just walked into the room doing the sort of weird Norwegian thing and he booked the role and then Whoa. he got to set and was just himself in his dressing room and they fired him because oh. they were worried he couldn't do it again. That was, you know, the, how, how how real that they thought Damn. it needed to be. They were convinced that he was this this person. That's pretty method. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and and I understand because they're taking a risk, especially you know, once you're a name, once you've got that resume or you've got the people that trust you, yes, they'll understand that you're going to eventually put on the the Joker or whatever it might be. But when they don't know, it's a risk. And how do they minimize the risk? They just believe that you are the thing. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to have the muscles of, of doing it beyond just kind of being yourself. But to be pretentious for a second, like the Safdie brothers and Blue Ruin, I guess not pretentious, of just what I admire, for low-budget thrillers, they use an element of just... Off, Safdie brothers often use real people that right. they found from New York. And then Blue Ruin, it's it feels pretty close to just real people expressing themselves too much violently. No? Uh, yeah. I think Blue Ruin had a real casting. Yeah, Blue Ruin had a so I guess it's one of the sad, yeah. Who's the director who only Never casts mind. non-actors? It's the guy who did Beasts of the Southern Wild. I forgot his name. I think oh, he lives here. Ben Zeitlin? I think so, yeah. He's doing, apparently he's doing the new Peter Pan. Entirely casted by non-actors. Whoa! Yeah. Really That's cool. Yeah. Bad news, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of commercial directors prefer dancers because they know the dancers physically have precision and... Um, that particular kind of look that makes them... And that translates to being better actors or yeah. being more prepared. The actor in film is a two-dimensional object as part of the set eventually, right? You, you right. smush the image together and eventually <laughs> you are the mise-en-scene as much as the... And the... Andy Serkis can play any one of you. Right. <laughs> it's also true. Yeah. I mean, so I th- again, I think that it's it's a different muscle. I think that acting is acting. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to split theater and film too much, but I also think that... You have to know what the industry is uh, looking for, at least at the beginning. Right. Um, sell them your your really good hamburger before you sell them your creme brulee. I guess for my acting, I never. Um, is this a podcast for actors? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, sorry, a little no, bit of everything. Yeah, okay, we're, we're okay. jumping. No, I was just gonna say like it's the only thing I have expertise some, on. Something I learned from Pledge on the, from the other actors is the difference between acting and then just dramatically expressing yourself. Huh. So like for me, I felt like a lot of the things I've tried to do are pretty much just things I feel. Mm. And it's just a different setting for those feelings. I've yet to be able to do something, like, as opposed to Zach, who I feel like does find things that he connects to, but he's able to tap into stuff that isn't really in line with his character and feelings. Yeah, it's great seeing both of them in the same scene together, because Zach Bird is one of the most well-trained actors I've ever worked with, mm-hmm. where he has, like, two degrees. He's, like, 
a machine and he could just lock it oh. immediately. And then Zach Wiener is the most untrained actor that I've ever worked for. <laughs> and he kind of buys into the Aaron Paul method of acting of, oh, you know, I just pretend to be the part and then <laughs> hopefully it works out. But he's very good at improv because Zach's household doesn't have, everyone just says whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So they don't really tie themselves down with inhibition. So Zach, so Zach is really good at just responding to exactly what's in front of him with a genuine reaction. So it works really well in the scene. And then nice. they made for a great dynamic together. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there was a lot of good chemistry among all of the actors. Did you guys do a lot of rehearsing? Or did you all... We wanted to, but he appeared like five days before oh, shooting. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. We would talk about the scene and, and, and get a lot of the improv or script ideas correct before we started shooting, but... We uh we kind of just rolled with it for a while. We nice. did read throughs. We did one read through before the movie yeah. of all the whole cast, and then we started. Oh wow! But then a lot of like micro and people talking, and and it fragmented the cast maybe in a good way. Mm-hmm. That might be one of those happy accidents, right? Um, because the, it happens. They were we buddied. We me Zach and Philip talked. The three good guys. Supposedly, in the bad guys, they had their own texting group chat. Yeah, they had their texting group chat. Oh, I, nice. I was like invited to their millennial parties. acting to get into the character. <laughs> they just keep texting each other, sending each other memes. They in character or in just... character? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome! So that was your method way of all kind of being for them. I wasn't invited. Oh, <laughs> just okay. the bad guys. Oh, it was the bad guys. Okay, got it. Never mind. Um, cool. Yeah. Last uh, last few questions. I mean, when it comes to, to to directing, filmmaking, writing, and acting, there's so many resources out there and books, and a lot of which is done by people who have never really done it or have not been that successful about it, particularly filmmaking. There's a lot of how-to books and courses by people who've never done it successfully. Mm-hmm. But that being said, um, just considering there's so much bullshit out there, were there any resources that helped you guys particularly in your career when it comes to filmmaking, writing, and acting, any books or anything that you would say are the real deal and legitimately helped you with your careers? Um, Daniel, you want to start? Um, sure. So the two directing books I've read were Elia Kazan's On Directing mm-hmm. and then Sidney Lumet. I, I'm not confident on pronouncing either of their names. No, I think he, yeah. I th- Lumet? I, that's, I think it's or Lumet. 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 I think it's Lumet. Yeah. God damn it. And yeah. he had one called Making Movies. <laughs> so those were the two books that I think helped the most Nice. in terms of advice. And this is a new thing, but video essays are incredible now. Video essays? Yeah. Like there are certain channels on YouTube that dissect film and show technique and you can I can learn more there than I have in classes in NYU and those helped a tremendous amount and then like random interviews (laughs) these blogs do so a lot of it was just online uh, film community that's cool and I want to shout out some of these youtubers but I'll forget the others but just the general community that does that video essays they are so incredible and Daniel after uncaged just went on this binge all the way up until now he Mm. just watches them all the time um, in terms of filmmaking, like the producing side of it for me and, and everything that was doing it, uh, Rebel Without a Crew yeah. and um, Werner Herzog, some of his stuff that he just, his quotes that are so funny. Mm-hmm. When he that deadpan ridiculous thing. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing I took away, less practical and more just like, there's no excuse for it not to get done. Right. As long as you have a camera and some, and people are working with you, you can, it should be a finished thing once you start it. Right. And then from a writing perspective, since then, I'd say the biggest help is into the story. And I'm forgetting his last name, but Scott Scott Myers, 
Sorry, I'm screaming into the mic. <laughs> Scott Myers, he uh, he is uh, has this blog online and a, a medium channel. Oh, yeah, I like, read that too. I read it, and it's the general idea is really cool. Was of th- rethinking scripts instead of each one is this sprint toward greatness, and this mm-hmm. draft is going to prove myself. It's just that you're going to do it a ton of times over and over, and you just have to get used to it. It's, it's repeat. Don't like worry more about repeating than showing, and. When it comes to writing and just ensuring that you develop a consistent practice. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. He gave no, and he made it numbered, which all other scripts I felt were really uh, advice on this was abstract, and this was concrete because he he had the one seven ten or like he had a rule like one you read one script a week you write seven pages a week it was some like out al- like algorithm hmm. of what you do a week so from then from reading that which was twenty sixteen I've been trying to keep some version of that. Oh, that's cool. A lot of times it's more like one page or like a month. (laughs) 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 I try to keep some numbered sense of of the, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I come from the academic perspective. I could talk about this for hours, but um, I do think ultimately that all the acting books say the same thing and they're going for the same product. You just have to find the process that speaks to you the most. And that's going to be something that's very individual to every artist. Uh, For me, it's just, I I had a teacher, I've had a couple teachers that just spoke vocabulary that brought things out of me that I didn't otherwise understand through reading it or or practicing it on my own. Um, There is a, there's a book that I really like called the actor in the target by Declan Donnellan. I think that's a, he's a Russian theater guy that uh, sort of takes the Meisner technique and puts it in a different light that is helpful because not every actor on set's a Meisner actor, mm-hmm. so you can't really rely upon a lot of those techniques that are um, pretty quintessential. Um, one, you know, you're going to cut me off again? Yeah, I just want to jump in. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> sorry. Let, let him finish. Oh, finish. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, no, that that's essentially, I, I think that, but, but go out of your way to find teachers that that are speaking the right language and if they're not get out of the class like if it doesn't i think that so many of those it's not that it's a bad teacher it's just because it's not resonating for you right and you could come at this from so many different perspectives because eventually we know what the product needs to be um you just have to find the ones that work but it's subjective like it has to resonate with you it's got to resonate with you whether it's a physical process an emotional process psychological process you know, whatever weird thing you do to get you to that place so that you eventually can just be right there mm-hmm. in the moment and do what you need to do, that's that's important. Um, and the only other advice I have, I mean, is, is to just do something in the audition room that nobody else is doing because it, it, there's so many people going out for this stuff. Um, they all look like you. They all, you know, have, have probably really good actors that have done this for a long time. So if you can find one angle that you think you can do that nobody else can do, that's the thing that's been most successful for me. Nice. Last thing is lose your mind. I listen to a lot of music with that general idea, and I think it's really good once you're at a certain point, especially with only with horror. I think that when you're trying to brainstorm, when you're trying to, or on set trying to like make up stuff on the fly, not for a director. This is right. for me as a producer and, and participating in it. Just really producer, just don't, giving yourself a lot of credit. Yeah, us a lot of credit. <laughs> Helping the producer. You're a lowly writer. Lowly writer. <laughs> Actor sometimes. <laughs> Assistant to producer. <laughs> but, <laughs> but basically the, the create like the part where you're just throwing stuff at the wall. Yeah. Um, even on set or offset, uh, is I think it helps to just literally just be crazy and don't worry about your ideas making sense. Don't worry about them being smart. Just go. Throw a high volume of 
of ideas that are important, like emotionally important to you. And when you're crazy, you have a lot of things that are emotionally important to you that don't make sense. Hmm. They don't, for no, no one else understands why it's important to you. Right. But you can, so I know that's kind of a yeah. weird idea, but. It, no, it makes sense though. And the last thing for directing, I have a whole like 50 page doc of all these things I save. And then I <laughs> narrow it down to like one checklist that I could just have every day of things I don't forget. Um, I only remember parts of it, but the first is never give in because I'm always tempted of, if I'm tired or if I feel guilty, just to say, okay, that's good enough. And I always need a reminder, no, don't give in. It's the only chance. Hmm. And the other two things were, one was from Michelle McLaren, who directed a lot of Breaking Bad episodes. Okay, She said that one thing that you need for every scene is just know your way in and out. Hmm. which is just really practical advice because the right. way in, like what's going to be that opening shot and what's going to be that ending shot, then everything in between can be in flux, but you have to know that way in and out. And then it can kind of calm you. If you can figure out the rest. And the other thing was, I forget what the five things are, but Coppola had five things and he had this notebook that he went around um, that he used while he was making The Godfather where he didn't have a script but he had each scene with pages from the book and five things that you needed for each scene. Um, one was like the summary. The other were was pitfalls of yeah. what can ruin the scene. So I tried to make one of those for each scene, like knowing the exact purpose, what can ruin it, and then trying to avoid those. That's cool. I forgot what the other ones were, but one was useless. It was like the time, but I guess for <laughs> the, the Godfather, that makes sense. Yeah. But for us, the time was 2018. It doesn't really matter. 2016. They published yeah. that, by the way, the Godfather Notebooks. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, you can get it. it scanned page by page what oh, the entire wow, annotated yeah. script looks like. Daniel. Yeah. Wow. Oh, we got to get some of that. Yeah. yeah. Got to be getting that. I'll get it for you for your birthday. Oh, my God. Thank you. I think it's called, yeah, the, the Annotated Godfather. I think that's it. Amazing. Yeah. Cool. How's the film doing, by the way? Pretty good. Yeah. Um, we've gotten a good reception, but a limited audience so far. But we're going to Hulu. Oh, nice. Oh, that's great. So we're happy about that. And we're hoping that we'll find a larger audience there. Awesome. Uh, it's, yeah. Cool. And yeah, but I've seen Midnight. It's been awesome. My family, yeah, how did they get involved? That the film got into Fantasia and they saw it at Fantasia. Oh, nice. Just bought it. Great. Cool. And they're in New York. So we love that. Well, yeah, that works out. Yeah. Last question. So what's next for you guys? Um, we are doing... Uh, a couple things. We're, Daniel and I are both working on screenplays right now, and we're, we're trying to finish them next yeah, month. Yeah, we're competing for what the next project will be. Pretty Whoever much. finishes first is what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. And then hopefully we can afford Zach Bird's increased salary for the next one. <laughs> but Mark, also, our producer is branching off, and he's trying to create a company that would try to replicate this kind of model. Yeah, in of, addition to working on whatever scripts we do, he wants to make uh, a lot of these low-budget pledges. Oh, nice. Like a Blumhouse kind of model, low budget. Yeah, it's like your single location. Yeah, single yeah. Loca claustrophobic like, location. Like, like, yeah, pretty much. He's doing them in New York? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So if you know some New York people who have some scripts, yeah, for sure. Yeah, email mark at sagpictures.com. Oh, he's, okay, cool. <laughs> if I put this on Dread Central, he's going to get totally loaded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. We'd appreciate we're it. looking for horror scripts. Yeah, we're looking for writers. As long as it can be made for like close to... The pledge budget that Zach announced halfway through. Yeah, nice. <laughs> One eighty, ideally. Yeah. Or less. A dollar would be the best. Cool. Well, awesome, guys. This is a whole lot of fun. And congrats Thanks. on pledge. And uh, everybody listening, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Is it on, when does it come out on Hulu? 
like a, a month and a half. Yeah, okay. It's on all the VOD platforms yeah. now. I, yeah, I saw it on iTunes. It's on, on, it's on your TV. But yeah. we know, I Spectrum. mean, I would have waited for Hulu, so. Yeah, cool. just wait for Hulu. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Nick. So let's get into some of the key insights that I got out of this conversation. First and foremost, it's all about the DP, baby. By DP, I obviously mean director of photography, you fucking perverts. Your DP is the person who can make your low-budget movie look way more expensive than it actually is. Have you ever started watching a super low-budget movie and because of the low production value, you found yourself completely checking out of the movie? It happens to me all the time and I feel snobby saying it, but it's a real thing that you just can't help. In order to psychologically believe a movie, it has to have a level of quality that translates to believability. This is critically important when making your first few films. The low-budget look can be a kiss of death for first-time filmmakers. It's critically important to make your movies have the highest production value possible, so take the time needed to find yourself an incredible director of photography because they're the one who's going to show you how to make the movie that you want to make. Daniel and Zach also mentioned the benefit of working with a DP who has a gaffer background because they understand lighting really, really well, which is a big part of making your indie movies look way more expensive than they actually are. Number two, Turn your cast and crew into a brain trust. If there's a technical challenge on set, which there always is, or a flaw in your script or any kind of hiccup during production, toss the challenge out to your cast and crew to help you solve. When filming, you have dozens of creative people all around you, and chances are someone on your set has dealt with the same issue before or will approach the problem from a different perspective than you. Your job as the director isn't necessarily to have all the answers. Instead, your job is to find all of the answers. Your cast and crew can be your best problem solvers and collaborators. Not to utilize them is a wasted opportunity. Number three, create a director checklist. I found this really fascinating. Dan has a whole list of specific pieces of advice and insights from other directors. For every movie he works on, Dan picks five specific insights that he turns into a checklist. Then he checks off every day of filmmaking each one of these little pieces of insights to make sure that he's maximizing his opportunity as a director. Dan also took a cue from what Coppola did on The Godfather and wrote out the potential pitfalls of each and every scene he directs to make sure they all work as well as possible. If you're listening to this, you probably read director interviews and probably watch feature-length commentaries. So start your own list. Evernote is a great place to start. Wouldn't you want to walk on set with a checklist of advice from people like Coppola, Scorsese, and Tarantino? Make your list and keep it with you when you shoot or even write. Last and not least, here are some of the key resources that the guys mentioned throughout the course of our conversation. Uh, as far as books, Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, Kazan on Directing by Elia Kazan, Rebel Without a Crew by the amazing Robert Rodriguez. This is one of my personal favorites. And Go Into the Story. This is actually not a book. It's a screenwriting blog series by Scott Myers, which is on the blacklist. The other thing that Dan mentioned and mentioned was really, really formidable for his abilities as a director was to watch video essays. So these are essays that are on YouTube that break down specific movies and themes and how they shot certain films and are just chock full of a lot of great information in different ways that people break down the script. They're all over YouTube, so definitely check those out. 
All right, guys, this was a ton of fun. Thank you all for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to follow the show, feel free to follow me on the Instagrams at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. I'm on Twitter on the exact same handle. Thank you again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care.